Well, I thought we'd uh, start to do things a little bit differently. Uh, for many years I've taught uh, using PowerPoint, and uh, I will from time to time use it. It's helpful sometimes, particularly when we've got charts, maps, and, and so on. Um, but there's a danger in doing that, and that is that we can get so used to looking at the screen, we don't start looking at our own Bibles. Of course, we need to get very familiar with our Bibles, and it's helpful as we're reading the text to be looking at it in Scripture as well. So um, probably for the remainder of Hebrews, um, we're going to do it this way. Um, I kind of like the way that the rabbis used to do it. They used to sit down and the, the congregation used to stand up. So if you'd all like to stand up for the next hour, no, no, just joking. Um, but I just want to, in a sense, make these studies, um, I say a little bit more simple. Uh, I just really want to see where the Lord leads us with these things. Uh, I've listened to so many commentaries over the last few weeks as I've been uh, building flat pack furniture, um, as I've been uh, putting our new office together at home, uh, and read a number of great commentaries of people uh, in the past. Uh, there's so much material out there. There's so much information um, but of course, it's, it's there, those that have done those, those studies and materials in the past, it's all there to point us to the Word of God. And the Word of God is, of course, the foundation, it's the center. Um, so we're just going to leave this with the Lord, see where he takes us as we carry on with this study. We're going to go into chapter 1 of Hebrews this morning. Um, but let's just ask for God's grace and God's blessing now, shall we? Well, Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have of being able to come together to study your word. Lord, we recognize that in many countries, people don't have this privilege. And Lord, many would love, dearly love, to be able to meet together in freedom, to open your word and not run the risk of being arrested or imprisoned or even killed. So Lord, help us to value the liberty we have, uh, the freedom we have in this country. And Lord, help us never to take for granted the the privilege and the blessing it is to have your word, Lord, those who have given their lives through the ages to ensure that your word has been faithfully passed down to us so we can learn and grow from the things we read. And we just pray this morning, the Lord, you open our understanding, open our hearts. Uh, Lord, just give us clarity uh, of these things. And Lord, may it not be academic, Father, may it be spiritual that, Lord, transforms and changes us. We just give you this time now, in Jesus' name, amen. Right, you notice I'm starting to wear glasses. That's because I'm starting to find I can't see things anymore. Um, it's an age thing. Okay, let's jump into chapter 1, verse 1 of Hebrews. It says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has or hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom is appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he said, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he said, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, 
is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall all wax old as doth a garment. As a vesture shall thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So that's our, our opening chapter. And it's such a foundational chapter in terms of understanding the rest of the book as we go through this. We've got 13 chapters, 303 verses, 6,913 words here. Uh, and we've talked a little bit about the authorship and so on. As I've said already, I believe it's Paul. Um, and I, I, there's a number of reasons I think that's the case. We, we see already in this chapter, just in verse, chapter 1 alone, there's nine specific quotes from the author from the Old Testament. The, the writer to the Hebrews knew scripture. He knew scripture really well. They just roll off his tongue. I, I, I don't think that when this was being written, the, the author is sitting there writing down, thinking, what verse could I quote from? Which one would be kind of useful? I think these are just rolling off his, his memory, his understanding. These are just quoting uh, from his stockpile of information, from scripture that he knew and had learned. So um, we certainly we know that Paul was that kind of character, uh, that loved God's word, was steeped in the Old Testament. And the, the Jewish scriptures. Um, so th- th- there's, there's so much scripture that's drawn in here as the foundation which the rest of the book is going to be built upon. Um, but we start right at the very beginning. God. And I mean, what a great place to start any, any epistle, any letter. It's starting with God. God is the author of everything. God is the one who has put all things together. We read in the beginning of, of scripture itself, in the beginning, God. Yeah, there was a a time when there was nothing. There was no thing. Um, there has to have been an originator to all of that. We understand um, just purely from logic alone um, that we couldn't have had the the heavens, the earth, and all creation hanging around uh, forever. It would have, it would have entropy. All the energy, everything else would have would have dissipated by now. We'd have ended up with a uniform temperature everywhere. The fact that we have suns that are shining that are burning away. Um, shows that they've not been there forever. So we get to the point we have to acknowledge that there was a beginning, and that's exactly what the Bible says. And the, God's, and the Bible says that the beginner was God. And so we start here with God, who is the, the foundation of everything. Then we're told who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. It's called speaking about the way God communicated to the children of Israel to their fathers, to the patriarchs and so on, and to the prophets um, in the, the history of the nation. Of course, the writer assuming that his audience understands the background of Israel, understands the history of Israel, and hopefully as individuals we have a, a reasonably good understanding, a good grasp of that. Actually, there's about uh, 33 references specifically to God in chapter 1 alone. So it starts with God, but it's all about what God has done. And that's kind of important to understand. This is this is what God has done. It's the same God who spoke to the fathers, spoke to the prophets, and so on in the past. That is now speaking about this gospel of grace, 
And this is what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. Remember the background we've already looked at, that the Hebrews, uh, the, the Christians that are being written to here, had been saved, but they were being pulled back, a little bit like we see in Galatians, to take on board those things of the law. And that's the danger, that you add to what Jesus has done, add to the completed work of Christ, works, efforts, something that, that make us feel a bit better about ourselves by doing things. Of course, that's not uh, in any way going to help our, our walk with the Lord. It's not going to help our salvation. It's not going to help our sanctification. We can't add to our salvation. And yet there's this mindset in all cults and all religions, all isms, um, that we have to do something. And the, the Hebrews uh, that are being addressed here in this letter, in this epistle, uh, were of that mind. They've been encouraged by the Judaizers to take on board some of the, the things of the law. You, know, you can't just abandon the law in the same way there's many churches today. Or you can't abandon tradition. You know, we, we love tradition, don't we? Um, and, and, you know, we may say, oh, we're not a traditional church, but actually we have our own traditions. We have things that we do, and we like the way we do those things. And if, if we, all of a sudden we, we change that, it kind of upsets us a little. I mean, you know what it's like when you, when you come in and you sit down. If somebody's sitting in your seat, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? You, know, you want to move them. But we like tradition as people. So imagine what it was like then for these Jewish believers that had grown up understanding Jewish tradition. And suddenly they're, they're being told to think again. Not to abandon those things, but to understand their context. To understand that you don't get right by keeping the law. That had been their life up until this point, by trying to keep the law and get right with God. And suddenly this gospel comes along and they're told that actually in us there's no good thing. Paul hammers that point in the book of Romans, that in our flesh dwells no good thing. And actually it's all about the grace of God, it's all about what Christ did. And that all the sacrificial systems of the past all point to Jesus Christ. So we're told, again, God at various times, sundry times, and in diverse manners. Now it's interesting because as we look back through the Old Testament we see God speaking in so many different ways. How does, the, how does God speak? Well, we can list a number, but God speaks through creation. Psalm 19 tells us that. If you've got your Bibles, just turn briefly to Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. So this is one of the ways that God speaks. We're told that God speaks in diverse manners, various, various ways. And this is one of the ways. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, in one sense, we're told also that the firmament shows his handiwork. Now, you look at the heavens, you look at the stars, they're staggering, they're amazing. But they're not that complicated. You know, I mean, when you look at a, a human body, it's way more complicated than any stars or planets or, or whatever. You know, what we have in the universe is breathtaking to look upon, but it's nothing compared to, to what God has done on earth. But nevertheless, we're told here that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day unto speech and night unto night shows knowledge. And then it's interesting because we're told this, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. That means they're saying something. They're speaking, they're communicating. This is one of the ways God has communicated. Now, there's really interesting studies um, that have looked at um, the historical understanding of the stars, the names of the stars. Now, of course, in the book of Job, it's referred to as the Maseroth. That gets twisted in, uh, by the time we get to Babylon into the Zodiac. The Zodiac's the same in all cultures around the world, uh, essentially. 
Um, but there's a common source, there's a common origin to that. Um, and it's, it's conjecture, but very, very good and well documented, um, that suggests that actually God had given his entire plan of redemption through the stars. And that's how the likes of Adam, and we go down through the, the, the generations, and we look at, at Noah and so on, how they understood a little bit of God's plan and purpose. That actually, rather than the stars themselves having these kind of dot-to-dot things that you see that make up pictures that actually don't represent you know, anything in a sense, you know, what we have with the stars, the stars themselves had names, and the groups and the clusters they were in, the, the, the heavens have been divided into these 12 typical segments. Um, and it, each block, each group, uh, tells a story, and that story starts with uh, Virgo, or the Virgin, and it goes all the way round to Leo or the lion. It's the gospel story. Um, and it's incredible. There's some really good books that you, know, you can get on uh, that take you through the details of it. Um, but the, the, the stars seem to have told that. Now, why have we, we lost that? Why have we forgotten that? Well, because we no longer need it. Why? Well, because, as we're told here, God has spoken in various ways in the past, but now he's spoken to us by his son. We'll, we'll come back to that again in a moment. So, of course, creation. We look at the world around us. We see design everywhere. Unfortunately, we live in a, a country that has been brainwashed into thinking that everything came about through nothing and that everything's the, the process of just random chance evolution. Of course, we know that's nonsense. You can't, evolution doesn't work scientifically. You just forget the religion element for a second or belief or whatever. Evolution does not work scientifically because there's not the information to create something other than what something already is. We've looked at this with our children and so on. You know, it is a very, very simple concept to grasp. You know, we use that example of a, a puzzle that we did with the children. You know, if you have a, a Peter Rabbit puzzle, you can't make a, a picture of Mickey Mouse because the information's not there. In the same way, you take one creature, you can't make another creature from that. The information's not there. Now, people will talk about mutation, but a mutation is only a loss or a scrambling of that information. It doesn't add anything new. So you can never get evolution to work. That's just one simple thing, but there's many other ways we can prove it. I mean, God makes a point in Genesis chapter 1 of saying that everything reproduces after its kind. And what do we see in the world around us? Everything reproducing after its kind. So we look at creation. We can see there has to be a designer. But how much does that creation tell us about God? Well, not a huge amount. The problem is as well that when we look at creation now, we're looking at everything after the fall. We're not looking at creation as it was. We see, in a sense, nature red in tooth and claw. You know, we see animals fighting. We see, you know, death. We see destruction all around. So in one sense, what creation does tell us is that something is wrong. Death is a reminder that something is wrong. This isn't how God originally wanted things to be. Death only came, we're told in the book of Romans, as a result of the fall. So, Creation does speak to us. Certainly the heavens, the stars speak to us. But the world around us speaks to us. It tells us of a creator. You know, you get a beautiful sunny morning like this morning. You go and look at the world. And it's hard not to believe that there's a God. You know, who was I speaking to the other day? Um, Somebody was just talking about the, 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 the Apollo um, landings. and the, 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 Everybody that's been outside of the earth and gone to, you know, on space trips and so on, they look back at the earth and that there's this awesome reality that there has to be a designer. Earth is like this jewel in space. You know, the world is just so special, so unique in so many ways. So creation speaks, certainly. But we're told here that the prophets also have spoken. Well, who were the prophets? Well, right from the beginning, 
God sent people. People that he called and spoke to them and asked them to relay a message to, to others. Often the prophets didn't really understand what they were saying. They gave utterances and words that maybe to them didn't even really make a lot of sense. But they were faithful. They recorded them. They passed them on. And we look at many of the, the prophets through, the, through, through Scripture. They're all speaking of that which was to come. And God has spoken through the prophets. Certainly you look at Israel. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them not to fall into sin. Not to reject him. Not to go after other gods. You know, and we have many prophets. I mean, even the likes of, uh, of Daniel. Daniel is spoken of as a prophet. And yet, Daniel doesn't prophesy himself. There's not any words that come out of his mouth. What he does is records the things that God showed to him. But he's still shown as being a prophet because he's speaking and recording of that which was to come. So God used these individuals in the past. You know, the other way that God speaks is through types and shadows. These similitudes that we've spoken of in Scripture. Of course, the, the greatest example in, in many respects is the, the one with Abraham and Isaac. That God has spoken through that account of what he would accomplish on the very same mountain. Of course, Abraham takes his son Isaac. It's, it's three days from the point that God gives the instruction to Abraham that he's to kill his son, to offer up his only son. And it's three days until he gets him back again. Interesting, the, the parallel. And of course he takes him to Mount Moriah, which we know today as Calvary, the same place. And they go to the top of the mountain. And of course Isaac's on the way up and he's, he's asking Abraham, his father, he's saying, you know, well, we've got the wood and we've got everything we need, but you know, where is the, 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 the sacrifice? Where is the, the lamb? And Abraham replies prophetically, God will provide himself a lamb. See, Abraham... A prophet. You know, you don't tend to think necessarily of Abraham as a prophet, but he speaks prophetically of what God would do. That God would provide himself a lamb. Now, if you remember the account, as Abraham's about to bring the knife down on Isaac, God stops him. An angel speaks, again, God speaking through an angel is another mechanism that God uses. But he stops and they look and they see a ram. And so they offer this ram. That wasn't the answer to the question. They offer a ram as a sacrifice, it's pleasing to God and so on, because of course the shedding of blood, which also speaks of what Christ would do, was still of value. But it's not until some 2,000 years later that that question is answered when John the Baptist declares, Behold the Lamb. That lamb that they've been waiting for for 2,000 years, that Abraham said God will provide himself a lamb, and then John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. And so these models we have in Scripture. In fact, Abraham, just, just to conclude that, Abraham actually makes the point that in the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. He actually states those, those words, that what was taking place there, he recognized was of prophetic significance. He probably didn't understand all the details, but he knew that God was doing something very powerful. And he says that on the mountain of the Lord, in this very place, it's going to be seen. And of course we see people like Moses and the incredible prophecies that Moses gives. I mean, I've said a number of times about Deuteronomy 28, one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. It speaks about the entire future 
of the nation of Israel from the point it was given as they were about to cross over after their 40 years in the wilderness, 38 years of wandering, they're about to cross over into the promised land, about to cross over the Jordan. And Moses recounts what had happened as a nation in the book of Deuteronomy, gives them this kind of summary just before he dies, and then reminds them of their future, of what's going to take place. The fact that they will disobey God, and that God will allow other nations to come and to attack them and to cause problems for them, to persecute them and so on. And ultimately, it speaks of Rome and all that Rome did, and then subsequently, that for Israel, they would get to the point they'd be scattered around the world, their lives would hang in doubt, they'd be looking for you know, every night for it to become the morning, every morning for it to become the night, and so on. And of course, we, we, we know from history of the Holocaust, all these things that have taken place. What an incredible prophecy. You know, and God has spoken through those things to try and get people to listen. And of course, many have. Many have responded, but also many have chosen not to listen. We're also told in the book of Romans that God has spoken to us through, his, through our conscience. We have this inbuilt knowledge of right and wrong. You know, we all know intrinsically that it's wrong to murder, that it's wrong to lie. You know, everything that is laid down in the Ten Commandments, we know it's wrong. God has given us our conscience as that knowledge of what is right and wrong. And our conscience bears witness, we are told, in Scripture. Some people don't talk to their conscience very often, but it's always there. Or should say don't talk, they don't listen to their conscience because they, they don't like what it says. But it's an awareness of what God has created us to be. And it's not what we have become. The fall has separated us from God's ideal. And so we see all these various types and shadows and models and you know creation and so on, and the prophets. And he says that God has spoken to us in all of these different ways in the past. And of course the, the, the Jews would have been very aware of this, these Jewish believers that are being written to here. But then the author, the writer that goes on and says that God had spoken in the past in that way, but as in these last days... Now, the, the idea here is that it's the last days of the law. The law has come to an end. The law has been completed in Christ. And now it's the beginning of the gospel. So having these last days spoken unto us by his son. It doesn't get better than this. It doesn't get any clearer than this. If there was any ambiguity with any of the prophecies that people didn't fully understand, and certainly there was. I mean, the... Uh, Ethiopian on the way uh, out of Jerusalem uh, when Philip meets him was reading the prophet Isaiah and he doesn't understand it. So a, a lot of the prophecies people didn't fully grasp but in case there was any confusion in case there was anything that wasn't understood in case people didn't really understand what the stars were saying or in case people really didn't listen or understand or want to hear their own conscience God now in these days has spoken unto us by his son. Or literally in the the, the, the text, what we have is God has spoken to us in Son. Okay, that's the language that God has communicated to us in. So we speak in English, okay? But God has spoken to us in a different language. The language is Sunnish, if you like. It's the language that God communicates to us in. There's a really important point here because if you want to understand God, you need to understand Sunnish. You need to be in the Son. 
You won't understand the things of God if you are not in the Son. If you don't understand Sunish as the language, as it were, God's language, the way that God communicates, everything God does, he communicates through his Son. The Word of God. The Word made flesh. The Word of God is the way that God communicates. It's the way that God speaks. If you're not in the Word you'll struggle to understand God because that's the way that God now speaks to us. But if you understand the language that God speaks in, if you understand that God speaks through his word, well, then you'll understand so much more about God and his plan and his purpose. You'll understand more about the situations and the predicaments that we find ourselves in and how we should deal with them because God has given us the answers to those questions in his word, in son. God's, that's the, the language that God now speaks in. So he's spoken to us now in Son, in his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things. I, I really love this. We, we speak of um, inheritance. We understand inheritance. And Jesus is the one who is going to inherit. Now, we could kind of spend the entire morning just unpacking this, but as a, as a very quick praise, think of the book of Ruth. Think of all that the book of Ruth tells us about someone who lost their inheritance. They they left their home, and yet they're brought back, and yet someone else then takes this Gentile bride, takes Ruth, and becomes heir of all that Naomi had and Elimelech had. Of course, that individual being Boaz. It's, It's a story of redemption. It's a story of the gospel. Because now think back to Adam. Adam lost everything. Jesus comes... And claims it all back. Jesus now becomes the heir. The rightful one. He was of the same family as Adam. So he's legally entitled to claim back all that Adam lost. So now God has justifiably and rightly so appointed Jesus as the heir of all things. It's easy to read that and think of before the foundation of the world, God had made Jesus heir of all things. And in one sense, of course, that's true. But actually, it's because of what Jesus did, he became the heir. So by God appointing him, it's not like a um, a doctorate that people get that's not earned. You know, you sometimes get that, that kind of situation where somebody very respected in their field gets kind of a, 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 a doctorate or whatever, you know, where they didn't actually sit the exams. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus actually earned this because of what he did. He became that um, kinsman redeemer. As again, the book of Ruth highlights for us. You know, and you go to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5. And just turn with me briefly, if you will. Again, another hugely important scripture in the, the scheme of things. Revelation chapter 5, John is caught up to heaven. He's seeing this incredible vision of what's going on before the throne. He sees these 24 elders laying their crowns before the throne and so on and worshipping the Lord. And then verse uh, chapter 5 of Revelation, it says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. This is a legal document. In the Roman times, a document that was written on both sides would indicate a, a, a legal document. And I saw a strong angel. That's an interesting statement on its own. Uh, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Who is deserving of this? And then it says, And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, an interesting statement in itself, was able to open the book, neither to look thereupon. So 
The search goes out and no one is found worthy to do this. And John says, verse 4, I wept much, or, or, or sobbed convulsively, effectively, wept much because no man was found worthy to open the, uh, and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And then verse 5, we thank God that we have verse 5 in Revelation 5. And one of the elders said unto, him, unto me, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. You can imagine at this point, this kind of great roar, this great cheer go up in heaven as this angel announces this. Or, one of the, or Sorry, one of the elders, apologies. One of the elders announces this. That Jesus is worthy. That he has prevailed. He has won back that which Adam lost. Justifiably. Adam blew it because of sin. Jesus was sinless. And Jesus claims back everything that Adam lost. He's worthy to take this title deed to the earth, effectively, this scroll. And in doing so, he's able to claim the title of the earth back, and of course, everything therein. All belongs to him. And we carry on in Hebrews. That... He's appointed him heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now, this is a staggering statement because not only has Jesus done all that he's done and he's become legitimately the heir of all things, everything has been given to him. Everything within the earth that he's purchased back, everything in the heavens. He says, but also whom he made the worlds. Jesus made it all in the first place anyway. He is the creator, we're told. It's interesting. If you study through scripture, you'll find a number of times that God is spoken of very clearly as the creator. And yet also Jesus is spoken of as the one who did the creation. So the only way of reconciling those things is to understand that Jesus is God. Jesus is God in human form. And we're told that in the very next verse, verse 3. It says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. And it goes on from there. But the first part of that verse just tells us that, that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father to us. They are one. They are the same. Jesus is the brightness of his glory. It's not as if Jesus is separate in that sense from the Father. Jesus and the Father are one. That's exactly what Jesus said of himself. And what a staggering statement when Jesus in his ministry says to the Jews that were listening to him, I and my father are one. Could you imagine this rabbi coming onto the scene as the Jews are you know, listing and trying to understand who this person is? And they're aware of God, but Jesus speaks of God as his father. No prophet had ever spoken in that kind of way before. No other religious leader had come on the scene and spoken of God as their father. But Jesus says, I and the father are one. The brightness of his glory. It's interesting, in the beginning of Genesis, we're told that there was nothing, but then we're told that God says, let there be light, and of course we know the scripture, and there was light. If you actually look at the Hebrew words there, actually, if we were to transliterate it, literally translate the words, it would, and God said, be light, be light. Okay, that, that's actually the words. The implication is that light already existed. The light was there, and simply God said, let it shine. So in one sense, God, and I would argue this, God didn't create light. Light was already there in the person of Jesus Christ. And God just said, let it shine. 
Now, we're told throughout Scripture that God is, is light. Ties in with this. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. We know in the New Jerusalem there will be no sun, there will be no other form of light because Jesus will be the light. Light is very fascinating. And it speaks of Jesus in every way you look at it. Now, there's just an interesting aside. Chuck Mosley used to talk about um, if you take a, a, the smallest subatomic particle, um, um, you can this this reactor or this, this um, process you can uh, end up simply separating it and you end up with just light. And, and the idea is that, and this has been postulated by scientists, that you could create matter from light. Okay. Now, that's fascinating because secular scientists have postulated that. And what is it that we're told? That Jesus is the one who's created all things. Jesus is the light of the world. Now, we read that as a kind of a metaphor, but I don't even think that is a metaphor. I think that is a statement of fact, that Jesus is the light of the world. We know that light makes manifest. Light makes everything clear. That's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus dispels and gets rid of the darkness. So we're told that he is the brightness of God's glory and express image of his person. Of course, God is spirit, we're told in John 4. And those that worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God doesn't have a physical form in the way that we think of beings in that sense. But Jesus took upon himself human form. His expressed image of his person. All the characteristics of God, the personality of God, who God is, is expressed in and through Jesus. If you want to understand God, you understand Jesus. Without understanding Jesus, you will never understand God. This is why all the, the religions and the cults in the world and everything else don't understand God because they don't understand Jesus. Jesus is the express image of of his person, of God's person. Everything that we can know about God, we know through Jesus. So we told that, and we told, and upholding all things by the word of his power. That's a statement. That Jesus holds all things together, and that's what we're told in the beginning of Colossians, even down to the atomic level. You know, how are atoms held together? You know, science still doesn't understand. They have this concept of something called atomic glue, which is something they just invented because they don't understand there's something that holds atoms together and they don't know because like charges should repel and and yet in the center of an atom as you know everything stays nicely neatly packed together and we're told in colossians that the lord that jesus holds all things together and here again that he upholds all things simply by the word of his power staggering power beyond anything we can imagine and we're told that when he had by himself purged our sins. There's two thoughts here. Firstly, it was of his own volition. Jesus willingly chose to take upon himself that which he did. It was by himself. And he had no other agent, no other uh, comfort, no other support through this. Jesus alone went to the cross and purged our sins, fulfilling all of those types and shadows and models of the sacrificial system. And when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Incredible. God's seal of, uh, of approval is seen in the resurrection. It's interesting that even in this, 
statement, we have the resurrection included. You know, the resurrection was the foundation of Christianity. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And here the writer makes the point that Jesus rose from the dead. He, Jesus is a risen saviour. Yes, he died. Yes, he went into the grave. But he rose again and is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then we're told, being made so much better than the angels. There's religions, I'm sure you're aware of, some of them come knocking on your door, that will tell you that Jesus is an angel. A very important angel, but they'll tell you he's an angel. Well, they need to read Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4, because Jesus was made so much better than the angels. We're going to see this comparison between angels and between Jesus. And it's very clear that Jesus is a higher order, a different level, completely. You can't compare angels and Jesus. Jesus, we've just been told, is the creator. He's the one that holds all things together, including angels. It's interesting, you know, if we were writing this to Gentiles today, there's a number of comparisons that writer gives, but, you know, we would talk about Jesus being better than Mary. For many Catholics, Mary becomes the object of their worship. But Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus was the one that Mary worshipped. Jesus was the one to whom Mary, in the Magnificat, cries out about her saviour. She recognised she needed salvation. And Jesus is greater than Mary. Jesus is greater than Muhammad. Why? Well, because Jesus is the complete revelation of God. Jesus called God his father. Muhammad didn't do the same. Jesus rose from the dead. Muhammad didn't. Jesus is greater than every other ism and cult and religion in the world. You compare in any way you want to. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. So being made so much better than the angels, we're told he is, notice again, by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. You see, man, we, we, we can read this as we go through, but man was made for a little while lower than the angels. Adam was created in that position above angelic beings. But because of the fall, because Satan usurped Adam's position, Satan took Adam's position. As Adam and mankind then become lower than the angels. When Jesus comes, he reverses the order. And he takes man again above every other created being, every other angel and so on. We're told even in Corinthians that men, that saints will judge angels. We're putting authority above them, over them. So again, being made so much better than the angels, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Again, because he purchased back all that Adam lost, he's been given his position now. For unto which of the angels said he at any time? Now the, the first quote, we're going to get this from Psalm 2, verse 7. He says, did God say this to the angels? That thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee? Now, just to clarify here, because it would be easy to look at that and think it's something to do with creation. Now, that's not the case. You'll find that some cults and so on will look at this and will say, oh, see that, that Jesus was created because God told you he was begotten. But it's not speaking of creation. It's speaking of the resurrection from the dead. It's the same theme that we've already seen. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. He was the first begotten from the dead. 
the firstborn from the dead, the first one to rise from the dead. Jesus never, so God never did any of this through an angel, but he did it through his son. And again, verse, uh, sorry, the second um, scripture quote now, which comes from 2 Samuel. What this, uh, there's a couple of key chapters in the Bible. 2 Samuel 7 is one of the ones you want to mark and learn and read. Seven times God promises David an eternal throne. Okay, which is so significant because, of course, Jesus comes, we celebrate at Christmas time, we speak about the King of the Jews. Jesus has never yet sat on the throne of David, but he will. It's all that's going to, to come to pass to fulfill those promises, those promises of everlasting throne and so on. And so this quote now from Second Samuel, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That was never made to an angel, that promise. But it was made to Jesus, to the descendant of David, to David's offspring. Verse 6, and again, when he bringeth the first begotten into the world, he saith, again, the first begotten from the dead. Not, not firstborn. Some try and argue that Jesus was God's first creation. It's not the case. Jesus is the first begotten. And the, the, the other implication here as well is the, the preeminence. You know, the idea of firstborn is the one that has the position, the title, the right. You know, we see it with um, Esau and Jacob, where Jacob tries to get hold of and does obtain the birthright, the firstborn. That position. Jesus has that position. So again, when he um, brings the firstborn or the, the one with preeminence into the world, he says, and let the angels of God worship him. Quote now, Deuteronomy 32:43. Let the angels of God worship him. Of course, it takes us back to the incarnation, takes us back to what we celebrate at Christmas when Jesus came into this world. And what did the angels do? The angels turn up, and as we see from the shepherds and so on, and their testimony, we see angels worshipping. The angels of God worshipping. They're singing praises to God because of the one who'd come into this world. Verse 7, And of the angels, he saith, who makes his, angel, his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Quoting now from Psalm 104, verse 4. Again, the writer really understands scripture. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. The Lord uses angels in all sorts of wonderful ways and it's not to, to downplay or say the angels aren't important. But then the comparison is in verse 8. But unto his son, he said, verse, uh, the, the, sorry, the fifth um, scriptures from Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So angels are supremely important. We're told that he makes his angel spirits and ministers a flame of fire. But in comparison to that, Jesus is the one who sits on the throne. Again, the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom, we're told. You understand again from the book of Esther how important that scepter is. You know, when Esther goes in to, to see the king, unless he holds out that scepter, she knows that she's going to be done for. But of course he, he does and she's okay. We see God's working in that situation. But the authority that the king has, well, we're told that Jesus has that position. Jesus has that authority. Way above. No angel has ever had that position. There was an angel once that wanted it. An angel once that wanted that kind of power and authority. And he's trying to convince the world that he has it. Of course, speaking of Satan. Verse 9, thou hast loved righteousness 
and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, and then our sixth quote from Isaiah 61, verse 1, that God has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Jesus has been anointed, he's been in this position with this oil of gladness, with this joy, with this great fulfillment of all that was planned from before the ages, that Jesus will have this eternal companion. And these things will be unpacked further as we go through the book. Speaking of the the bride of Christ that, that has been purchased by the blood of Christ. Verse 10, and now we get to the seventh quote from Psalm 102, verse 25. And thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. Our eighth quote from the Old Testament, Isaiah 34, verse 4. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall all wax old as does a garment, and as a vesture shall thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. God is the one who has given Jesus his position. God is the one who is outside of time. God will never grow weary. God will never grow tired. The heavens are going to grow old. The heavens will be wrapped up like a scroll one day. God will not be so. And in verse 13, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand. This is the ninth quote in this first chapter. The final quote from the Old Testament from Psalm 110 verse 1. Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. What a a statement. What a a great declaration of the position and the authority of Jesus Christ. He's seated with God. Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And God is going to do exactly that. The enemies of Jesus Christ one day will all bow before him. We're told that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. And they'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're just concluding the chapter. It just says, speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who who, who shall be heirs of salvation? It, It speaks of the work of angels. And it's an incredibly important statement, actually, because it tells us a little bit of the role of angels. But the comparison, again, is that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater than. And it speaks of them who are, uh, these angels, who are ministering spirits. They go forth to help those, support those, who are going to inherit salvation. Well, that's us. Any believer, anybody who is inheriting salvation, well, we have angels watching over us. Uh, Billy Graham, many years ago, I'm sure some of you are familiar with it, wrote a book all about angels. And uh, I've not read it. I've heard many people quote about it, uh, quote it and, and say how great it is. But he speaks in the book of a number of people who have had encounters with angelic beings. And by all accounts, they're quite staggering. But I've heard many other accounts through the years of people that have been in situations where they were miraculously protected. And I don't know to this day how they got through a particular situation, but they attribute it to the work of angels. Some have even seen people that have suddenly disappeared afterwards who got involved in a situation, maybe protecting them from an accident or from a situation or whatever. Angels still minister. They still work. They are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them, to serve. That's what a minister is, someone who serves. To serve for them who shall be heirs of salvation. My dad always used to tell me that uh, when you're driving a car, the angels kind of sit on the bonnet, but they get off at 70 because obviously that's the speed limit. 
Uh, I'm not sure whether it's true or not, but I'll leave it with you to ponder. But they are there, nevertheless. But notice again, just there is a salvation, but who is it that has wrought salvation? It's Jesus. They're there serving those who are saved and who are going to be saved. And there's an interesting thought there, isn't there, that it's not just those who are saved, it's those who the Lord, who the Lord knows will be saved. Angels are already watching over them. It's a lovely thought for those who we're praying for that are not yet saved. But that salvation, they're protecting those who are being saved, that salvation is all in and through Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity, this time, just to think about how awesome our Saviour is, how much better than angels or any other created thing Jesus Christ truly is. That he is our Lord, he is our Saviour. He's the one who has inherited all things. The one who has become our kinsman redeemer, purchased back that which was lost, and is seated right now at the right hand of the Father. That he is the brightness and the glory of God represented to us. Oh Lord, help us to learn to speak sunnish. Learn the language in which you speak to us through your word, that we may understand our Father more, and that we may love our Savior more. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.